Thanks. All right. Well, now we got that out of the way. Um, well, since you're standing, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. You're preaching through Hebrews, right? Okay. So what text are you on? Let's turn to Hebrews 10. No. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. By the time John gets to Hebrews 12, you will have completely forgotten anything that I said. So. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, we're going to start reading at verse 12. And this is the living and abiding Word of God. Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we just sang, um, who else invites us to call him Father, only a holy God? Father, what an amazing truth that you, the infinite, eternal, majestic, transcendent, thrice holy God, would invite us to call you Father. Now, Heavenly Father, we know that that invitation comes only because in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law, and you have sent the Spirit of your Son into our hearts, whereby we now cry, Abba, Father. And so, Father, we thank you for the inestimable privilege of being your children. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown unto us that we should be called the children of God, and that we are. And so, Father, we come to you this morning and we would plead with you that you would help us in this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would would take the word with surgical precision and do in us, Father, what, uh, what we may not readily welcome. We pray that he would do open heart surgery on us today, that we may be conformed more to the image of your Son. And so we pray for the help and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after I had heard that your dear pastor had been suffering and our church was praying for you and for a speedy recovery, I, I, I texted him at the beginning of the week and said, you know what, maybe you should just preach because, you know, after being sick, it might be good. And he basically texted me back and said, are you crazy? I'm still exhausted. My face still hurts. I can't open my mouth. Why would you even suggest such a thing? And I knew that he was uh, on drugs. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about a very, very serious subject this morning. And we're going to talk about the bitter root. There's a, an obituary that I have in my files of a 79-year-old woman named Dolores Aguilar. This came from the Vallejo, California Times Herald, August 16, 17, 2008. 
was submitted by one of her daughters. Reads like this, Dolores Aguilar, born August 7th, 1929, died August 22nd, 2008. Dolores Aguilar, born in 1929 in New Mexico, left us on August 7th, 2008. She will be met in the afterlife by her husband, Raymond, her son, Paul Jr., and her daughter, Ruby. Dolores had no hobbies. She made no contribution to society. She rarely shared a kind word or deed in her life. I speak for the majority of her family when I say that her presence will not be missed by many. Very few tears will be shed, and there will be no lamenting over her passing. Her family will remember Dolores, and amongst ourselves we will remember her in our own way, which were mostly sad and troubling times throughout the years. We may have found, we may have some fond memories of her, and perhaps we'll think of those times too, but I truly believe at the end of the day, all of us will really only miss what we never had, a good and kind mother, grandmother and great-grandmother. I hope she's finally at peace with herself. As for us who are left behind, I hope this is the beginning of a time of healing and learning to be a family again. There will be no service, no prayers, and no closure for the family she spent a lifetime tearing apart. We cannot come together in the end to see to it that her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren can say their goodbyes. So I say here for all of us, goodbye, Mom. Bitterness. By the way, you might think, what a bitter obituary. But I want to say, what kind of bitter life would lead to such an obituary? Bitterness is, is a defiling and corrosive sin that leaves utter devastation in its wake. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at bitterness in a sense from a biblical theological perspective. And I want to say that bitterness is not really a sin that we readily admit to. Um, it's not as if you meet in your small home group and say, hey, how is it going? And you say, I'm just a really bitter person. Okay? People don't usually talk like that. And so this morning, we really need to pray, as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, that God would search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us. The word bitter can obviously be used non-figuratively um, for something that causes a sharp or acrid taste or even experience. Uh, in that sense, in the non-figurative sense, uh, the bitter object can be unsafe to consume. Uh, it is akin to, to poison. And this is used in Scripture like this in many places. One would simply be Exodus 15, when they came to Marah, which is the Hebrew word for bitter, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. You have to kind of appreciate the play on words. They came to bitter. They couldn't drink the waters of bitter, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named bitter. <laughs> At other times, the word bitter or even bitterness can be used figuratively to convey severe grief or even regret. And so you might remember after Ruth loses, or after Naomi loses her husband and her two sons, she returns and she says upon her return, do not call me Naomi, call me Marah. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? And so that very idea, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Severe grief. 
Job, by the way, Job uses this term uh, uh, frequently. One example, Job 10.1, I loathe my life. I will give full vent to my complaint and I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. The bitterness there, of course, was the severe grief that Job was enduring. Or think of Simon Peter. Jesus says he's going to deny him three times. Peter, of course, says, I'll never deny you. And then Jesus predicts that before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me three times. And then when that happens, we read this in Matthew 26. Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The idea, severe grief. But bitterness can also refer to animosity or anger or harshness, or resentment. In fact, if you look the word, up, you look the word bitter up in, uh, in a lexicon that has related words, you'll often find bitter associated with the idea of anger or hatred. And so one lexicon reads to have, to be bitter is to have bitter resentment or hatred toward someone. And so anger and hatred and bitterness are all tied together. And so we read this in Scripture. For instance, James 3.14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. And so James tells us that having bitter jealousy along with selfish ambition in our heart, we have to make sure that we what? Don't be arrogant. Oh, I could never be guilty of those sins and therefore lie against the truth. And then James tells us that that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition actually doesn't come from wisdom from above, but from below. And it's natural, earthly, and even demonic. Ephesians chapter 4, the passage that was read earlier. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, right? So you see how the word bitterness is used there in connection with wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, do not be embittered against your wife. And then Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many are defiled. Robert Jones, who's a biblical counselor, says there's nothing uglier than bitterness. That inner anger lodged deep in the heart sometimes known only to the bitter person and his all-seeing God. Bitterness is settled anger, and the kind that not merely reacts to someone's offense, but forms a more general and global animosity toward the offender himself. He makes this observation, he says, anger responds to an incident. I'm angry that you did that. Bitterness goes deeper to form an attitude or a settled stance or posture against the perpetrator. I am bitter against you because you are an evil person. He then says the incident becomes almost secondary. If you think of bitterness, you can think of it like this. Bitterness is like a low-grade fever. It's always there. It's always right there under the surface. And and from time to time, it will spike and and show itself. But bitterness is not just simply something um, that's in my heart that, that, that may be there beneath the surface. Bitterness actually can begin to work its way into my life and into my heart and into my mind so that everything ends up being viewed through the lens of my bitterness. 
The other day I was reading in um, Psalm 73, and Asaph says, When my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. In other words, bitterness actually creates a a perspective that, that, that in turn makes us senseless and ignorant and beast like. Bitterness destroys the bitter person, destroys the people around them. And you've heard it said before, and it's absolutely true. Being bitter is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Nancy DeMoss says this. She relays how the corrosive bitterness that comes from unforgiveness can spread. She quotes from a letter that's written by a man whose father left him when he was two years old. And the last lines tell the story. The man writes, The hatred I carried for my daddy wrecked my first marriage and is threatening my second. I am a shell of a person. I don't have any close relationships. The power of bitterness is a destructive, destructive power. So, where does bitterness come from? Well, I would say that bitterness comes from a few different sources, but the primary source is actually unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is the primary source for bitterness. And so bitterness is the result of actually not forgiving somebody who has sinned against me. And so let me just show you how this works. By the way, all of us actually know how this works. I don't even need to explain it. Our own life experience can exegete this for us, right? So someone sins against us and they hurt us. And that hurt becomes a wound. And then we nurse that wound and it festers. Now, maybe the person asks for forgiveness, or maybe they don't, and maybe the hurt is real, or maybe it is perceived, but the fact is is that the hurt becomes consuming. And in fact, it it, it clouds the way that the, the person who's been wounded sees absolutely everything. And so bitterness comes from unforgiveness, But bitterness can also come just from having a sense of resentment towards somebody. And that resentment doesn't necessarily have to come because they specifically sinned against me. Maybe this person has done something that wasn't specifically a sin or a transgression against me. But maybe it was was just a massive disappointment to me. I would say that this ends up being fairly common in marriage. Not necessarily any massive grievous sin, but just being disappointed. Being disappointed in the husband that God gave you. He's really not the man that I, that I thought I was marrying. Or being disappointed in the wife that God gave you. She's not really the woman that I thought she was going to be. I look around and I see other husbands and other wives and they're happy and they serve and they never fight and they wake up every morning and their breath smells great and they tell each other they love each other, they give each other a kiss. They go on their day with with this uh, wonderful bliss and here I am stuck with him. Or her. Maybe it's a son or a daughter that that, that didn't do what you 
thought they should do, or, or maybe they did things that you knew they shouldn't do, and you feel let down and disappointed, and disappointment can lead to a sense of bitterness. Maybe a friend let you down sometime. Maybe you thought that friend would always have your back. You thought that friend would always be loyal. You thought that friend would be there through thick and thin, and then all of a sudden there's some massive disappointment, and that disappointment begins to breed bitterness. And so what happens with disappointment is we begin to obsess on the disappointment. And the disappointment then is taken more and more seriously. And so the disappointment, instead of, it, instead of just looking at a person who maybe they let you down, all of a sudden it becomes more and more deeply personal. How could they do that to me? And such thinking leads to bitterness. But there's also bitterness that is simple resentment against God. Bitterness at God occurs when we are, quote, disappointed with God. Now, I remember years ago when I was in seminary in 1990, um, there was a book that was very popular. Maybe you remember it, Pastor John. It was by a, a, a man by the name of Philip Yancey, and it was called Disappointed with God. And um, the, the irony was is that the book didn't condemn being disappointed with God, but talked about basically how to navigate being disappointed with God. And, and I, and I want to say right at the beginning that it's never right to be disappointed with God. It's never right to be angry with God. There's a lot of psychobabble nonsense that seeps its way into the church that basically says it's okay to be angry with God. Just tell God how you feel. And the, the minute that you raise your fist against the Almighty in anger, you are actually taking your life into your own hands. Is never right to be disappointed with God. And yet, it is absolutely common. Bitterness occurs, maybe, maybe we uh, experienced a loss. The, the loss of health. By the way, if you're a healthy person, you have no idea how profoundly devastating it can be to lose your health. Okay? If you are a healthy person and you've, and, and you think that you're dying because you have a cold, you don't have a, night, you don't have a clue, all right? But to lose your health, to become dependent on other people, and sometimes that results in us feeling like, God, you should have treated me better. Or, or what, about, what about something like the loss of a loved one? This last summer, we had a family. We love this family. They're, they're like family to us. They had a precious 19-year-old son. He was one week away from heading off to university and got, worked on a ranch, got in a freak accident on an ATV. He had three other guys with him. Those three guys walked away. He was killed on the spot. Do you think it would be easy to say, God, why, why did you let that happen? He had his whole life in front of him. He was the apple of our eye. You gave that boy to us and we raised him and we loved him and we poured ourselves into him for, for your sake and, and, and for him and, and now you took him from us. Sometimes it can be something as simple as the loss of a job or, or maybe a dream that you've had just dies and there's a sense in which it becomes, you can become resentful towards God because you know at the end of the day, God could have done otherwise. God could have preserved my health. God could have preserved life. 
God could have preserved that job. God could have actually made my dreams come true and we can become bitter against God. And I think that if you read the book of Job honestly, you will realize that starting in chapter 3, Job actually expresses tremendous bitterness with God all the way to the end of the book until God speaks. So how can I know if I'm a bitter person? So this is where I go from preaching to meddling, all right? I'm just going to warn you up front. So bitterness is simply hard to acknowledge. But it's such an ugly sin. And we don't want to see ourselves as ugly. You know what we do is we like to admit to things that we know everybody else struggles with too. Yeah, you know, I, I have, I've got a little bit of pride. Yeah. Well, actually, that's not true. If that's my confession, that's not a good confession. I don't have just a little bit of pride. Right? Nobody, nobody says, do you know the viper of pride dwells within my bosom and makes me think that I'm better than everybody else? No, we just go, you know, I suffer from pride a little bit, kind of like everybody else, like you. We don't like to admit to the ugliness of sin. And yet bitterness is one of those ugly sins. And so Lou Priolo, who just recently just went home to be with the Lord, wonderful biblical counselor, actually gives the following evidence of being a, a, a bitter person. And so just to maybe lighten it up just a little bit, you remember Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if... Okay? <laughs> So just switch that around a little bit to, you might be bitter if. I know that's not nearly as fun, is it? Bitter people, says Priolo, are contentious people. To be a contentious person is to have an attitude of opposition, a, 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 a a pattern of strife and conflict that negatively impacts relationships. So, in this world, so this side of heaven, are we still all sinners? Okay, yeah, so, so all of us are sinners. When sinners live together, guess what they do? They sin. And who do they sin against? Well, they sin against each other, right? So, so there's a sense in which conflict in this life is simply unavoidable. Conflict in marriage is unavoidable. Conflict in church is unavoidable. Conflict in the workplace is unavoidable. Conflict is just one of those things that's a part of a fallen world. And so conflict is unavoidable, but the bitter person is a conflict magnet. The bitter person actually um, has this, um, this propensity towards being contentious. A healthy person, when there's conflict, what do they want? The healthy person wants reconciliation. The bitter person is absolutely at home with conflict. You might be a bitter person if you have difficulty in resolving conflicts. So first, contentious person, but the bitter person also has trouble, difficulty, resolving conflicts. So for the bitter person, conflict comes easy, but resolution and reconciliation does not. You might be a bitter person if you find yourself isolating yourself and keeping your distance from others. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, the one who isolates himself pursues selfish desires he rebels against all sound judgment. The bitter person can begin to become so bitter against other people and have so much conflict that what he, what he does is, <laughs> I've recently actually met a person that says, you know what, 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 what I think <laughs> the Lord wanted me to do is just to like, keep away from people so that I didn't have conflict. I said, oh, can we look at a verse together? Proverbs 18.1. The man who isolates himself 
seeks his own desire. What is it with the bitter person? The bitter person, first of all, often thinks that they're the smartest person in the room. Right? And so, in order to avoid conflict, why not just be the only person in the room? Okay. Now, <laughs> now, bitterness ends up making a person an expert at Cold War tactics. They know how to not only distance themselves, but they've masterfully learned how to use distance as a weapon. The bitter person will frequently use harsh and caustic speech. The speech of a bitter person is is not just harsh and caustic, but it is critical because, well, bitterness promotes judgmentalism. And so Robert Jones, once again, he says, if we become bitter, we will be assuming God's role as judge. What role do we play when we remain bitter against someone? We're functioning as a judge. We assess the evidence against someone, render a verdict, and declare him guilty. No wonder the Apostle James challenges our judgmentalism. Quote, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James 4.12. Bitter people grab the throne of the one lawgiver and judge. You might be a bitter person if you are overly sensitive to anything that remotely appears to be an affront or an insult. So, in other words, the bitter person is the one who who excels out of turning molehills into mountains. The bitter person is actually so sensitive that there is never, ever any benefit of the doubt given. Something is perceived as an insult, and and by golly, it's an insult. And so one one day, um, a man that had been my friend for over 20 years, he got remarried, and um, let's just say that his his second wife wasn't nearly the, the quality of his first wife who had died and gone to be with the Lord. And and uh, this man used to, used to boast about what a great pastor's wife Ariel was. And he would always say, she's so real, she's so gregarious, she loves people. And he's always bragging about what a great pastor's wife she is. And then one day he calls me. And I could always tell when he was mad at me when he called me because he would, when, when it was a, a good call, he'd call me Bri. When he was mad, it was Brian. Was, Brian, we need to meet. Oh, here we go. So we go to meet, and we meet at the Cowboy Cafe, and I go in, and instead of like standing up, give me a hug, hey, how are you doing, it was sit down. You need to tell Ariel and Ashley to stop being mean to my wife. I'm like, Ariel, be mean? You're kidding me. I've often thought that if Lucifer actually showed up to our church on a Sunday morning, she'd be out in the foyer introducing herself and say, how are you? Are you kidding? And so he says, they're mean. I said, well, how come? Why? I want to know what makes you say that. And he says, well, Ariel and Ashley, Ashley's my daughter, We're in the training chapel, so it's a room that we have, sort of like that room back there. And my wife walked in, and they immediately got up and left. You don't think there's a plausible explanation? I'll never forget these words. I know mean when I see it. Did you see it? You heard about it. You didn't see it. 
So I called Ariel. I said, do you remember two Sundays ago, so-and-so walked into the training? I don't have any clue what you're talking about. She calls me back about 20 minutes later. She goes, I know what you're talking about now. So at that time, my daughter had, had three little boys, twins that were six months old, and their baby brother, who was two. Okay? That's, that's a handful. They're sitting in the training chapel. One of the twins, who will remain nameless, just in case he ever hears this when he's older, <laughs> has one of those classic blowouts. All right? Down the legs, blowout. Up the back, blowout. Saturate the onesie, blowout. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then God bless you. And so, immediately, Ashley thinks, I need to get him out of here before he stinks up the whole place and go change him. So she grabs him, Ariel grabs the other two, and they get up, and yeah, they got out abruptly. She saw them get up abruptly as she walked in, and she assumed, they're leaving because I walked in. Can I just say, if, if, if you're that kind of sensitive, let me just tell you, people don't actually think about you that much. <laughs> okay? We had a lady in our church. People are gossiping about me. People are, it, was, it was Betty. She's in heaven now. But people are gossiping about me. How do you know? I know they're gossiping about me. I said, how, how many people are gossiping about you? All kinds of people are gossiping. I said, Betty... I, I actually don't think people think about you enough to gossip. <laughs> the person that's bitter has incredibly thin skin. Incredibly thin skin. So the very idea that, that love just covers a multitude of sins, or the idea of just giving somebody the benefit of the doubt... That's, that is a reality that is so far from the mind of the bitter person that it never even registers. One last thing, you might be a bitter person if you have a great memory. Now let me qualify that. Bitter people may not be able to remember what they had for breakfast, but they can remember with vivid, high-def detail an offense that took place in 1977. And they don't hesitate to recount it. You know you're in trouble when you sit down with a married couple and they always want to go back to 1989 as their starting point, right? And so a bitter person has a tremendous memory of offenses that have occurred years and years before. So what's the danger of being a bitter person? Well, the text that we read from Hebrews 12 actually tells us. So the writer to the Hebrews tells us, pursue peace and holiness. Okay? Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will serve the Lord, and see the Lord. And then what happens is that the writer then tells us right after that that. that command, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He then gives a call to be on guard of falling short of the grace of God. Now, the, the way that the passage works is, is, in a sense, the writer's telling us how we are to pursue peace and pursue holiness and the first way is by looking out or by watching out or being on guard that we not fall short of the grace of God. But then the second is related to it, the second call, and that is we have to be on guard also against a root of bitterness. 
In other words, the way that you pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one sees the Lord is to make sure, watch out, that you don't fall short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness actually comes up. Right? So that, in, in other words, that's the agenda when you're pursuing peace and holiness. Okay? Now, what's the root? Now, some people... And, and it's, it's, I think it's natural, you, you read the, a root of bitterness and you think an attitude of bitterness, like a root of bitterness that like springs up in my heart, so like a bad, bitter attitude. And I want to say that the writer is, is actually hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and, and you will see, let me read it to you. By the way, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the, 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 the language is, is verbatim. Right? So the connection is there. So Moses says, he, he talks about, he says uh, in Deuteronomy 29, he says, Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not here with us today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had in them, so that, so that there will not be among you a man or a woman, or family or tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse, that is, the bitter root, when he hears the words of this curse, that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And so, what is the root of bitterness that the writer says, hey, watch out to make sure no root of bitterness springs up. The root of bitterness is not an attitude, it's a person. The person is a bitter root. Now, the bitter person is a bitter root in that he or she Poison or toxic. So what is what characterizes being a bitter root, being a bitter person? One, poisonous. Two, it's cut off or falls short of the grace of God. Now what what should we make of that? I would think of it like this. So bitterness clogs the arteries of grace. Okay? Bitterness clogs the arteries of grace. Or if you think of, of, of a conduit that, that brings us grace, bitterness clogs it up so that we come short of the grace of God. So that in the end, how, what's some of the greatest demonstrations of God's grace to me? Well, actually speaking, we, we, we did it in the service. Confessing our sins and the assurance of pardon. So when God communicates pardon and forgiveness to me, that's grace. When God communicates or conveys mercy to me, that's grace. The bitter person ends up declaring, I don't need the forgiveness of God. Now, a bitter person, if he's a church person or uh, she's a church person, they're not going to actually just blatantly say, I don't need the forgiveness of God. But yet, what do we see in Scripture about being an unforgiving person? How many of you memorize the Lord's Prayer? 
John, there's three people in your church that know the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) You get down to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? Now, after Jesus gives us the petitions of that prayer, there's only one petition that he expands on, and it's forgiveness. So in Matthew 6, 12 through 14, Jesus turns around and says, if you do not forgive the sins of others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Now, right away, so people like us, right? People that love theology, we love our Bibles, automatically we start thinking, oh, well, how can that be true? How can that be true and yet me still believe in the catechism question? Can I, can, can I actually abandon my faith or lose my salvation? The answer is no. And so how in the world can I turn around and, and believe the words of Jesus that if I don't forgive others, my Father in heaven's not going to forgive me? Or even worse yet, take that parable in Matthew chapter 18 where you have the king or the master and he brings a guy in who actually owes more money than he could ever, ever pay back. In fact, the the amount of money that he owes is an insurmountable amount. And so he throws himself on the mercy of the master. Um, Just give me time. I'll pay it back every penny. Please have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And what what does the master do? He forgives him of his debt freely. Then the forgiven servant goes out, meets a guy who actually owes him money. Now, it's not like he owed him 20 bucks. He owed him what would have been the equivalent of a third of a year's wage. All right? So, significant amount, but is it payable? Of course it's payable. Insurmountable amount, he's been forgiven. He starts choking this guy pay every cent, you're going to go to debtor's prison until you pay every last penny. The other servants see it. They're shocked. What did they do? They go and report to the king this man's behavior, and then he has that man summoned before him, and he says, I was willing to forgive you this insurmountable amount, and now you are not even able to forgive your fellow servant, right? So you understand the disparity. King, servant, right? And then servant to servant. Take that man, bind him, cast him into outer darkness until he pays every last cent. Well, when is he going to pay every last cent? The answer is never. And then Jesus says these words. Matthew 18, 35. And so shall my heavenly Father do to every one of you who does not forgive his brother from his heart. Now, what I want to say is, instead of trying to rush to figure out how we can understand that in a way that makes us feel a little bit better with the catechism question, We have to understand take it at face value. Do not minimize it. It's a threat. Right? Now, I think there's a theology of threat that works just fine with the perseverance of the saints. But don't rush. So, the bitter person They don't think they need God's forgiveness. Why? Because they're unwilling to forgive. If I'm unwilling to forgive, what am I actually saying about God's forgiveness? I'm saying at the end of the day, I don't need it. Or what about mercy? The bitter person says, I don't need God's mercy. Why? Well, God gives mercy to those who show mercy. And Mercy triumphs over judgment. And the person that says, no mercy for you, is saying, I don't need it. So, the bitter person is a poisonous root 
cut off from the grace of God, then the next description springs up and causes trouble. So the bitter person is a troublemaker, or as, as we used to say growing up, a pot stirrer. And then here's the next part. And defiles many. Bitterness never stays contained. Bitterness seeps out. It's corrosive it's, and it's contagious. This is a hard pill to swallow, but I'm going to tell you what. If you're a bitter parent, you will raise children who have been defiled by your bitterness. Serious stuff. And so bitterness is rooted, obviously, in pride. Sometimes it's, it's the idea, I deserved better from God. Sometimes it's just simply the pride of, I deserved better from you. What I want to say is, the first is never true, the second might be true. Bitterness towards God comes from some misguided expectation and a denial of his sovereign rights over my life. The remedy of bitterness to God is simple. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and yield to his sovereignty so that in in Ecclesiastes 7, 14, and 15, you have this idea of, of in the day of prosperity, rejoice. In the day of evil, consider. God has made one as well as the other. Right? And so if I embrace the sovereignty of God and I actually know he's holy and I'm not, it's actually really, really hard to maintain any kind of resentment or bitterness against God if I embrace his sovereignty over my life. If I recognize, if I recognize that he loves me, Every trial that comes into my life passes through his hand. He never has, has ill intent towards me, but only good. And there are times that he brings things into my life that cause pain. But I really do believe down to my bones, Romans 8, 28, I can't be, I can't be bitter towards God. The real question is, how do you overcome being bitter towards somebody else? And I want to say that it's a little simple. Not easy, but simple. You gain a perspective on the nature of true forgiveness. According to that parable, you and I Sin more against God in an hour, yea, a minute, than another human being could sin against us in a lifetime. And if you don't see that, one, you don't understand the holiness of God, and two, you don't understand the malignity of sin. And so, if Paul says, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, the answer to overcoming a bitter heart is to learn to be a forgiving person by cherishing God's forgiveness of you in Jesus Christ. I'm assuming we're going to take the Lord's Supper. You know, we're going to eat bread and drink the cup, and it is that that is a declaration that my sins, although massive, have been forgiven through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
If I cherish that forgiveness, it is really hard to hang on to a bitter heart towards someone. And so let's be absolutely clear. To be an unforgiving person, that is to be a person who will not forgive, is dangerous to your soul. Because if I'm unforgiving, that's my way. I'm not saying, I'm not saying we could do a whole series on forgiveness. I'm not saying struggling with forgiveness, all right? I'm saying my way is to be an unforgiving person. It's a reflection that I have no capacity to forgive because it shows that I don't know what it is to be forgiven. Don Carson said, those who are forgiven must forgive lest they themselves should be incapable of receiving forgiveness. And so bitterness and unforgiveness is actually the barrier to receiving God's grace. And so don't treat bitterness and unforgiveness lightly. Let me just say one thing about forgiveness that's important. Sometimes the question comes up, so, so you might be thinking of a person right now that you struggle with, being bitter against. And you think to yourself, okay, so I'm supposed to forgive that person, but maybe that person's never come to you and asked for forgiveness. Maybe that person's never acknowledged that, that he or she has caused you any pain. And so then the question is, am I supposed to forgive that person who has never come to me and asked for forgiveness? And I want to say that this is where we can make a fundamental distinction that's profoundly helpful. And that is, there is a difference between having an attitude of forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. An attitude of forgiveness. I would actually say this. I think it's wrong to walk up to somebody who has offended you, sinned against you, done you wrong, and just give this blanket statement, I forgive you. And the reason that that's wrong is because it circumvents that person's repentance. They don't even need to repent anymore because they've already been forgiven. All right? So don't do that. Don't do that. But what is it to have an attitude of forgiveness? An attitude of forgiveness means, one, I've weighed that person's sin against the sin that God's forgiven me of, and therefore, in the court of heaven, my heavenly Father knows I don't hold a grudge. I don't harbor anger or bitterness towards this person. Father, you know that if they come to me, I am ready to forgive. In fact, there'd be nothing more that I'd love to do than just extend that forgiveness because of that, it's just simply what God's done for me, I'm now extending to that person and I got to be ready to do that. That's an attitude of forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness only happens when the offender actually comes and says, I've sinned against you, Please forgive me. At that point, if you've got an attitude of forgiveness, guess what you're going to delight to do? Now, by the way, you're bound to forgive. You're not necessarily bound to trust. You're not bound to look at what they did now as if it was good. You're not bound to actually never bring it up again. Oh, oh, here's a tricky one. Never bring it up again as a point of contention, a point of controversy. May it be necessary to talk about why did this sin happen? What can we do to prevent it from happening in the future? That may be very constructive, okay? But I don't use it as a club to beat that person with once I have forgiven them, okay? So attitude of forgiveness, transactional forgiveness. And so, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, maybe I'm more bitter than I realize. What I want to say is just, okay, so accept the fact that bitterness is like a cancer that will eat your soul. And defile people around you. And ask God, ask God to show you. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's an amazing thing. Um, there are certain prayers that I know that God almost always answers immediately. Okay? Not 
Lord, I'd really like a better car. Can I have a better car? I claim it. Okay. I claim that better car in Jesus' name. And two months later, you're still driving a Pinto. Okay. I know a prayer that God will faithfully answer. Father, show me my sin and show me the wickedness that's in my heart because I want to deal with it. You pray that, God will say, okay, buckle up. (laughs) Buckle up. And so pray, ask God to do that. And then (laughs) ask for help. Lord, I, I, I don't want to be a bitter person. I want to value your forgiveness of me in Christ. And so make me a forgiving person by cherishing the forgiveness that I have in you. Brothers and sisters, bitterness kills relationships and in the end will make us miserable. And it will make everyone around us miserable too. Bitterness leads to obituaries like Dolores Aguilar's. Bitterness extends from generation to generation. And so put away bitterness. Cherish forgiveness. Be enamored with Christ's Calvary love for you. And live your life in such a way that when you die, you'll be missed. Let's pray. Father, we, if we're breathing, we know how hard these things are. And we pray for your help now. Lord, especially as we come to the table, we pray for your help. Open our eyes, open our hearts. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would unclog our arteries that we might receive the fullness of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.